If you have a Bible, turn with me please to Romans chapter 7. In the Church Bible, it's page 1133. And in the Large Print Bibles, 1753. Romans 7. And I'm going to read the whole of chapter 7. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin... Seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I find that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment, put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death. So that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. 
Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. This is God's word. And as we come to look at this, let's remember what we've heard recently in the book of Romans. In the second half of chapter 5, Paul told us about two men and two worlds. The world we're all born into is the world of Adam, the world where sin and death reign. But Christ's work on the cross opened up a new world, the world where grace and life reign. When we put our faith in Christ, we begin to live in that new world. It is not just a future thing. It's now. And in chapter 6, Paul began to explain what that means for us. It means sin's power over us has been broken. We have been set free from sin to serve God. Yes, we'll always have to struggle against sin. But we are no longer slaves to sin. We can say no to sin. We are free to serve God instead of sin. Paul will have much more to say about that in chapter 8. But in the passage we just read, Paul deals with the question, can we serve God without being set free? The question mark in that title is crucial. Paul is asking, is it possible to serve God when our slavery to sin has not been broken? And the way Paul approaches this is by talking about God's law. That's the law that was given to Israel at Mount Sinai and recorded in our Old Testament. In chapter 6, Paul made a statement about the law that he really does need to explain. He said to these Christians in Rome, you are not under the law. That needs some explaining. Because we might ask, well then, was the law bad? Should we rip it out of our Bibles? What does Paul mean? Well, he doesn't mean the law was bad. Later in our passage, he'll say the law is holy, righteous, and good. Not only that, the law has plenty to teach us as Christians today. Lots of it is repeated in the New Testament to show us how to live as Christians. So when Paul tells Christians you are not under the law, he means you're not living in the situation the Israelites were in before Jesus came. You're not living in a situation where you're commanded to keep the law, but always failing to keep the law 
and therefore always being condemned by the law. So the way to think of this is that while the law still has relevance for Christians, our relationship to the law has changed. It no longer looms over us, condemning us and causing us to despair because we can't keep it. That's what Paul is explaining here in chapter 7. And he begins with a statement in verse 1. The law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. And then Paul gives an illustration. He uses the illustration of a married woman. She is bound to her husband as long as he lives. Now Paul is well aware that death is not the only thing that can break a marriage bond. Next Sunday night, when we look at Mark's gospel, we'll look at the whole issue of divorce. Paul knows about all that. But this is not a passage about marriage and divorce. Paul is simply using marriage as an illustration here. And the general reality of marriage is a wife is bound to her husband until he dies. She says at her wedding, till death do us part. So, if she goes off with another man while her husband is still alive, she's an adulteress. On the other hand, if her husband dies, she's no longer bound to him in marriage. She's perfectly free to marry somebody else. Death, in this case her husband's death, has set her free. That is all Paul wants to say with this illustration. And then he applies it to the situation of Christians in verse 4. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Back in chapter 6, Paul told us that faith in Christ unites us with Christ. It's as if we went with him through death and burial and then resurrection to new life. That's what Paul is picking up on here. When Christ's body died on the cross, it was as if all his people died with him. And that death sets us free from our old relationship to the law. Now, clearly, that isn't exactly parallel to the marriage illustration. It wasn't our old husband, the law, that died. It was us. But the point is the same. There was a death. That old marriage is over for us. And having been raised to new life, we now belong to another. We belong to Jesus in order that we might bear fruit for God. And that tells us being free from the law does not mean pleasing God is off the agenda for us. No, our unity with Christ means we are in a new situation. Pleasing God is now possible for us. We can bear fruit for him. That's something we couldn't do before. And if we ask, how is it possible? 
The answer is because we have the Holy Spirit. He gives us power to obey what we could not obey before. So Paul says in verse 5, when we were in the realm of the flesh, and in the language of chapter 5, that would be when we were in Adam, when Adam was our representative head, then the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we can serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. In chapter 8, Paul will deal in detail with the new way of the Spirit. So the beginning of chapter 7 is just a little taster for chapter 8. These opening six verses give us the new way of the Spirit to be continued. But before that, in the rest of chapter 7, Paul wants us to breathe in the alternative for a little bit. At the moment, I'm reading a book about the First World War. And one of the most striking things for soldiers in that war was the contrast between the fear and the squalor of the trenches and the sheer joy of being relieved for a few days to go away from the front line and rest in the beauty of the French countryside. And many of their letters home talk about the delight of moving from a situation of constant shelling and constant mud and constant exhaustion, moving from that into what felt like another world for them. They might have been only billeted a couple of miles from the front, but they were in a place where they could sleep and bathe and eat well. One soldier wrote home, the joy of endless water, clean, clear, fresh water, in which we could bathe and at the same time enjoy quietness and peace. That was a miraculous thing. Another wrote, I think only those who have been in the front line can realize how delightful ordinary things are. What a blessed thing sleep is. The relief of not being shelled. And how nice it is to have clean hands and wrists. Those soldiers appreciated normal life. And they appreciated it all the more because they'd experienced days and nights of being miserable and oppressed and filthy in the trenches. Well, here in our passage, verses 7 to 25 are a bit like that. Walking through these verses is like experiencing the trenches before the delight of being relieved. To help us feel the joy of the new way of the Spirit in chapter 8, Paul prepares us here with a dose of the old way of the written code. Now, before we go on, 
I need to mention that not everyone agrees with me on this. Some people have interpreted these verses as a description of the Christian life. And their reasoning tends to go like this. The Christian life is a struggle with sin. That's my experience. And in these verses, Paul is describing a struggle with sin. Therefore, Paul must be describing the Christian life. But with the greatest respect to those who hold that view, I have to say I don't find it at all convincing. Certainly we can all agree that the Christian life is a struggle with sin. Paul agrees with that too. His letters constantly call Christians to persevere in their struggle against sin. But what Paul describes here in verses 7 to 25 is a hopeless struggle with sin. And that is not the reality of the Christian life. It's not the reality Paul describes in chapter 6 and chapter 8. In the verses we are about to look at, Paul describes the experience of someone who is sold as a slave to sin. Someone who is a prisoner of the law of sin. That's what he says in verses 14 and 23. But in chapter 6, Paul described Christians as those who are set free from sin. He told Christians, sin shall no longer be your master. He said, you used to be slaves to sin, but in Christ, sin's power over you has been broken. And in chapter 8, Paul is going to go on to say, through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So yes, as Christians, we still have to fight sin tooth and nail. We have to actively offer ourselves to God instead of offering ourselves to sin. Paul said that in chapter 6 too. The Christian life is a battle with sin. But it is not a hopeless battle. And these verses in chapter 7 describe a hopeless battle. They describe the man or woman trying to serve God in the old way of the written code. Rather than the new way of the spirit. A simple way to see that for yourself is to sit down sometime and just read carefully straight through chapters 6, 7, and 8. And as you do that, ask yourself, does this part of chapter 7 paint a picture that fits with what chapters 6 and 8 said about the Christian life? Or does it paint a picture that contrasts with what those chapters say about the Christian life? I think it's pretty clear this section contrasts with chapter 6 and 8. And so with that in mind, you'll notice something else about these verses. Paul has been talking about we. Now he begins to talk about I. I would not have known. I am unspiritual. I am a slave to sin and so on. So who's Paul describing here? 
Whose voice are we hearing? Who is the I in these verses? I think the context tells us. Chapter 7 opened by talking about those who are bound to the law. That's Paul's topic in chapter 7. So the I who's speaking in verses 7 to 25 is a religious person who's seeking to please God without having received new life in Christ. And in Paul's context, he has in mind his own people, the Jews. That's who Paul is describing in these verses. And as a Jew himself, it's likely he's partly describing his own experience before Christ found him and set him free. But initially in this section, Paul is looking even further back. In verses 7 to 13, he describes the history of the law in Israel. Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Paul wants to be clear that God's law is not a bad thing. But when it came, it led to more sin in Israel. You may remember God began working with Abraham and his descendants in Genesis chapter 12. But the law didn't come until Exodus chapter 20, many hundreds of years later. And speaking here about Israel's experience, Paul says, I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. You shall not covet is the last of the Ten Commandments. And it's significant that Paul chooses this one as his example. Why? Because the other nine focus on external behavior. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, and so on. But coveting is something you do internally. And Paul is saying God's law called for obedience in your actions, yes, and also in your heart. When God gave his law to Israel, it made his will very clear. It called men and women to certain ways of living, and it forbade certain other ways of living. Well, then how did Israel react to this? Did it bring about obedience in Israel? No. It brought about rebellion against God's law. Verse 8. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I find that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment, put me to death. Suppose there's a mud puddle in 
the corner of your garden. Now suppose you have a five-year-old and your five-year-old just came home with white trainers, which you paid for. And he's about to go out and play in the garden. For his own good, he needs to know he's not to jump in the mud puddle. But what's the one thing that will virtually make sure he does go and jump in that puddle? Telling him not to jump in it. That's just about what happened back in the Garden of Eden. God told Adam he could eat from every tree in the garden except one particular tree. And that one command of God was what the serpent used to lead Adam and Eve into sin. God's command was good. It was intended to save them from a broken life. But the serpent twisted the command. He used the good command as a way to stir up their rebellion against God. He convinced Adam and Eve God's command was a way of taking away their freedom and holding them back. And that same process was played out later as well. In Exodus 20... God said to Israel, don't make an image of anything in heaven and earth. And don't bow down to it and don't worship it. But what did Israel do in Exodus chapter 32? They made a golden image of a calf and they bowed down to it and they worshipped it. And the same scenario is being repeated endlessly today. Sin uses God's good commands to make men and women feel they're missing out by obeying God. Sin's catchphrase is naughty but nice. God says it's naughty, but try it and it'll be so nice. In Israel's case, it is not that there was no sin among them before they received the law. Of course there were sinners before then. But sin sprang to life when God gave them the law. Because at that point, God's claims on them became very clear. And their rebellion against him became very clear too. The law's condemning power came into play. They weren't just general sinners anymore They were now transgressors of God's clear commands. As Paul says in verse 13, when the law came, sin became utterly sinful. That's what happened in Israel's history. But many, many of the Jews were religious people. They not only believed in God, they believed the law was from God. They believed it showed God's good will. And they desperately wanted to follow it. The Jews of Paul's day would have agreed with his statement in verse 12. The law is holy. And the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Many of the Jews believed that passionately. They sincerely wanted to please God by living according to his law. 
Before Paul himself became a Christian, it's likely he had memorized the entire Old Testament. He was a rabbi, and that was part of a rabbi's training. Many of the Jews could sincerely say, I delight in God's law. It's a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. So how did those men and women get on? The sincerely religious ones. Paul tells us in verses 14 to 25. He describes the experience of living under the law. And much of what we find in these verses applies not only to Jews, but also to sincere churchgoers who have not yet been made new by Jesus Christ. Look at verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Christians struggle to do what is right. All of us have had the experience of sinning and thinking to ourselves, how could I do that again? And there are many non-Christians who sincerely want to do what's right. So what makes their struggle different from ours? Simply the fact that they cannot carry out their good desire. Christians and non-Christians both fail. But the non-Christian does not have the power to succeed when it comes to pleasing God. Does that mean non-Christians never do anything good? Does it mean every non-Christian is as sinful as he or she could be? Of course not. But by himself, in his own human power, the non-Christian cannot overcome the power of sin. Now, he may not take every opportunity he has to sin. But he cannot overcome the experience of agreeing in his mind that certain things are good and others are bad. And yet, in practice, finding himself doing the bad and neglecting the good. And this is something many non-Christian writers have been aware of through the centuries. For example, the ancient writer Ovid wrote, I see the better and approve it, but I follow the worse. Aristotle said we know something's wrong, but then in a moment of temper or passion, we do it anyway. Paul knows what that's like. 
And he's able to explain why for non-Christians, overcoming sin is a losing battle. It is a battle for all of us. But for the non-Christian, it can never be won. Because sin is at the controls. Sin is in the driving seat of the non-Christian's life. None of this takes away human responsibility for sin. But it does explain why education and why improvement in living standards don't make any difference at all to the amount of sin in the world. That's the common hope many people hang on to. If we just improve education and get people out of poverty, then they'll behave. But they don't. They just become more sophisticated sinners. Some of the most spectacular crimes of the last few decades have been carried out by people who've had the best education available. Think of all of those big financial swindles that went on. An uneducated thief might steal 20 quid out of your wallet. An educated thief can take billions. But maybe at this point someone will say, okay, but if we give people moral education, that will do it. But think about who Paul is describing here. He's describing the most morally educated people around. He's describing men and women who knew right and wrong like we know our times tables. But they find themselves enslaved by what they knew to be wrong. They were prisoners of sin. Their moral education could not override the power of sin. How do people like that end up? Well, many of them make do with faking it. They make do with keeping the outside of their lives as clean as possible, and they just give up on the inner battle. Because no one else sees that anyway. But by God's grace, many others in this situation come to the place where the burden of their sin causes them to cry out to God for deliverance. That's what Paul describes in verse 24. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Or simply, who will rescue me from this body of death? We saw last week, sin leads not only to eternal death in the future, it also leads to living death now. A brokenness of life. And many people go through life never really grasping their brokenness. Or if they do, they never really look for healing. But when a person's eyes are open to the slavery they're in, when God convicts them of the chains of their sin, then they cry out for rescue. 
And Paul points out the only one who can rescue in verse 25. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's only through the work of Jesus that men and women can move from the experience of Romans 7 to the experience of Romans 8. It's only through faith in Jesus that we can move from struggling hopelessly against sin to struggling with the power for victory. Paul will explain all that in detail in chapter 8. But what can we take away from this today? Well, if you're not a Christian, what you really need is not primarily new resolutions to be better or new opportunities to be better. Your first and greatest need is to acknowledge your sinfulness and your powerlessness to overcome your sin. You need to come to Jesus for forgiveness and new life and new power for living. And this applies equally to men and women of other religions. For example, there are tens of millions of sincere Muslims. Men and women who are doing what their religion tells them to do to please God. They want to please God. But they experience a similar kind of failure to the failure Paul has described. Those men and women do not need to be told by well-meaning liberal Christians that they're fine if they sincerely follow Islam. Those men and women need to know about the deliverance from the power of sin that comes only through Jesus Christ. Romans 7 tells us it is not possible to serve God until we have been set free from sin. And if you are a Christian, yes, sin is still prowling around, still laying his traps for us. Sin is still a dangerous enemy to be resisted and put to death. But thank God you're no longer sold as a slave to sin. You're no longer a prisoner of the law of sin. You're no longer condemned to be defeated by sin. You are able to serve God in the new way of the Spirit. We're going to praise him for what he has done for us as we sing, You Alone Can Rescue. And then we'll close with, O Church Arise. <laughs>